My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome to the KingCast. My name is Eric Vespi. I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. What we have for you today is our interview with Thomas Jane. Mr. Interview, Tom quote, Jane. unquote. Ah, a tempest in a teacup. <laughs> a, most, a most spirited conversation with, uh, with Tom Jane. So th- this, uh, you're hearing this in our main KingCast feed. Uh, this interview has been live on our Patreon for a few weeks. So th- you're getting this intro <laughs> this way uh, for a reason. Uh, we typically, a little behind the curtain peek here at, at the KingCast, we usually record the intro with a guest on the line and then have it all in one big uh, swoop. That was my intention for this one. And I had a, a whole nice thing written out about... How, you know, Thomas Jane has starred in Dreamcatcher and 1922 and The Mist and and how he's got, you know, the Stephen King cred. I had all this beautiful stuff written out and um, (laughs) and it became quite written out. Now, fuck you. Tom Jane is here with his own agenda. And correct. uh, Well, it it was it was one of those things where when the guest logs in, there's a period of chit chat time before we hit record and get everybody acclimatized. It became very clear about eight minutes into the chit chat that he was just going. And, yeah. <laughs> and so we, we join in the conversation in media res, as they say, which is in, in the middle of the action. And one of the very first things you're going to hear is, uh, uh, actually not Thomas Jane's voice. You're going to hear his, uh, girlfriend and Hayes, and you will kind of get an idea of, of how this interview is going to go right off the, the bat. Well, he's everybody's dropping F bombs and he's busting he's my balls searching for a lighter. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, he's but and he, he busts my balls for not hitting record earlier. And we did miss some gold in which uh, Wampler uh, professed his undying love for Gus Van Sant psycho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll uh, add on to that for a second. We were we were on the line with. Thomas Jane and waiting to start. And he was waiting to collect a lighter from what sounded like a woman in a distant room, but we, we didn't know who that was. It was just, you know, like just chit chatter before the show. And then, um, after this went back and forth for a number of minutes, uh, Tom Jane was like, um, sorry guys, that's my, my girlfriend, Anne Hache. And I was like, your fucking, your girlfriend is Anne Hache. He said, yeah. And I said, well, tell her I said, I really appreciated what y'all were going for with the Psycho remake. And then um, almost instantly in my headphones, and I assume that she must have heard this from across the room, uh, I hear Anne Hache saying, we were making art. And and uh, that went on for a couple of minutes. Uh, it was it's it's kind of bananas as as you'll see from you know the conversation that followed it's it's kind of bananas but that set the tone for everything that followed yeah no tom jane is not a man to mince words he doesn't have any airs about him he is never takes into account any sort of politics or <laughs> potential fridge burning uh, that him. that might occur as such it is a very lively 
a very raucous uh, and, you know, sometimes introspective interview. He, he's a, he's a really fascinating guy. Uh, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of the mist. I met him on the set of the mist. I was there covering it, uh, doing a set visit for ain't it cool. And I was there for multiple days and, uh, that's where I, I met him first and we share some stories about that. And yeah, we, we get into a whole bunch of really good stuff. So, you know, I hope you guys enjoyed the chat as much as, as we did. It's very erotic. Is, is that, is that your takeaway from this? Yeah, it's my takeaway. It's uh, not true, but I'm just going to say it. You know, you're going to get steamed up listening to this. That's that's good news for you. If you share the same kinks as Scott Wampler, then <laughs> pre- prepare to get If you want to hear about why a guy is not wearing shoes at any time, you are going to be horned the fuck up as a result of this interview. I, I love Tom Jane. He's a he is a fucking character like you would not believe. But but I love that guy. All right. Yeah. So get ready for the interview if you would like to join up with the patreon to get early access we we have another another one in the can with a person who has starred in a, another stephen king adaptation a very well-known stephen king adaptation coming up mm-hmm. keeping that one uh under our hat for the moment but it bronson. is coming yep. he, not bronson pincho not yet someday bronson <laughs> pincho coming there's the there's not there's not enough paper in this world to get him through an hour with us talking about balky our Kingcast uh, Patreon is patreon.com slash the Kingcast. Yes, please join us. Now enjoy our episode with Tom Jane. What is this? Yeah, it's a podcast. You're doing yeah. a podcast? Yeah, Holy from shit. Austin. They're in Austin. Fucking... Oh my God, you didn't tell me that. I was shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, we're leaving all of that we, in. I was going to say, we, we, we love the cameo. Uh, you hit the record yet? For fuck's sake, man. Because guess what? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, been, it's recording, man. It's recording. <laughs> Good, it's not going to get any different, pal. It's not going to go like in some special way just because you hit a fucking red button. Mm. This is it. <laughs> this is the tease. No, we got to get good. serious now. No, no, <laughs> yeah. no. This is awesome. I mean, dude, like you know, I, I think you know we hit it off pretty well when I met you on the set of The Mist, and I think we kind of understood each other. <laughs> I, I know what I'm signing up for. Get a lighter. Get a lighter. I'll bring you one. I'd like a lighter. Okay, I'll bring you one. Uh, Eric, Eric used to be known as Quint at the time that's true. Um, it was uh it was totally cool you know some people you meet and you know you you sort of like understand and some people you meet and you don't you know and then there's some people you meet and you're like who the fuck is that guy that's you <laughs> yeah yeah i'll take it <laughs> no, well, I, so, rem- I remember at the time you were you were like deep in development on your comic book and in like uh i think you were just super happy to have a geek around to bounce <laughs> bounce your your comic book ideas off of i mean i'm sure like that was all in kind of a new world for me because you know i'm from a rural town and do you have a light for me i, bring it. I smoke a pipe now oh I found, really I picked up Pipe, yeah. I directed an episode of The Expanse in January, right? So, um, which was awesome, right? I had to shadow, which means hang around and watch everything the director does. Uh, Breck Eisner, and I love Breck yeah. Eisner on The Expanse. Um, I shadowed him for a month last year, and then they gave me the job and they let me direct an episode of, of episode, uh, uh, sorry, season five. Thank you. And so, thank you. Give me the, my life. Thank you. So I figured, okay, I'm directing an episode of The Expanse. I need to look like a director. 
So I went out to the, you know, we're in Toronto and I went out to the tobacco shop and I found a pipe and I'm like, that looks good. You know, it's not a riding crop <laughs> or know. a giant cone that you yeah, shelter. Right. Or a so I just, yeah. So I just, I bought this pipe and I, so I started, so I carried it around with me every day. Um, yeah, well, you we actually smoke, smoke it on set? Uh, outside, you know, again, we're in yeah. Toronto, we're all on stage. Uh, and by the way, it's freezing cold and we're all, sh- of course, always shooting in the winter, but in between shots, you know, when I would tell, you know, when we like, okay, put the camera here, then I'd run outside and smoke my pipe, but I would also use it inside and I'd be able to point with my pipe to the monitor and say, you see this <laughs> black spot here? Let's put some more light in here. Let's take some more light out of here using my pipe. Anyway, I got addicted to it. So I'm still smoking it. <laughs> yeah, no, we we smoked cigars together before. I remember when I visited you on what Dark Country when it was like us and Perlman. Were you in uh, New Mexico? Yeah, yeah. You brought me out um, a little set report thing for Ain't It Cool back that in the day. Yeah, incredible. I am so right. pleased that you made <laughs> it to New Mexico with me and Ron Perlman. Yeah, wow. no that 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 was a very choice. Uh, Evening out, just because uh, we were all staying in that weird like resort thing oh that was God, like all yeah, Adobe, totally and stuck, you know. Yeah. Wait a second. Do you know that I recently completed my director's cut of Dark Country, which is seventy six minutes and in three D? No. And we had the downtown independent theater here in Los Angeles uh, do a, a screening of it. So I've actually, for the first time last year, of course, before all the you know the virus hit and all that craziness hit, we were able to get people together and screen my director's cut, which is about nine minutes shorter than the uh, Sony cut, which is weird, you know, because directors are usually at, asking to add stuff back in, right? But I, <laughs> right. I, I was always like, make it tighter, make it tighter. Anyway, we we did that. Um, we had actually had a, a wonderful uh, organization, um, which is the 3D uh, Museum here in Los Angeles. They actually turned Dark Country, my director's cut, into a 3D cut. His name is Eric Kurland. Okay. So if you want to look him up, Eric Kurland is, is the sort of curator of 3D in Los Angeles. And he took my director's cut, which is 10 minutes shorter than the Sony cut, and turned it into 3D. And we had a couple of screenings last year before everything went to hell. Well, you shot it in Had 3D, look, right? right? We did. It was the first dramatic film to be shot in digital 3D. Yeah, I remember you worked, made a, a big deal on the set. You had like some of like Cameron's guys or whatever that were... Uh, uh, yeah, and we had to invent the whole process, you know, because it had right. never been done before. So we were running around with like Mac, Mac laptops nailed to uh, nailed to two by fours, and we're running around in the, de- in the desert. It was really fun. Yeah. Well, uh, it, I, I think we should transition over to the mist. One, I was super as a big King fan. I remember when I was talking to Darabont about about that. Like he sent me the script years before it got picked up and made. And it was largely unchanged. 
Um, it had the ending on it, which uh, I, I figured <laughs> or I found out on set that like he actually kept away from most of the crew, which was interesting. As far as the ending goes, I'll just inter- interject in a second. Please. As far as the ending goes, uh, Weinstein Company begged him to change it to a positive <laughs> ending. And, and they said, we'll du- double your budget. But, you know, of course, we all stuck to the ending that uh, Darabont had written. And so we, we made the film for half of the money that Einstein was willing to give us because we wouldn't change the ending. <laughs> it still looks great. Yeah, no, re- and that's like the master stroke of the whole movie, you know? So you, yeah, got, you guys definitely made the right choice. Yeah. yeah. Before we even uh, like jump into there, I think we should touch on Stephen King as a whole, because you've, you've been in a lot of Stephen King movies. Dreamcatcher was your first. Yeah. That was the first one. Yeah. I have two questions. One, how aware of you of King were you leading into that experience? Were you a fan of the books or previous movies? And two, did you know what the hell you were signing up for when, yeah. <laughs> when you did that movie? Yeah, that's funny. The answer is uh, yes, I was a huge King fan. And no, I had no idea what I was signing up for. <laughs> um, um, and King, I think he's the greatest you know, writer of our era, I think. Uh, so yes, I've read most of his books and I've always been attracted to anything Stephen King. It's just me. You know, I'm also a huge comic book guy and it's just the world I live in. So I've been fortunate to have acted in three Stephen King films. And now I have a company called Renegade and we've, op- and Stephen King has optioned a film for us called From a Buick 8. <laughs> I cannot. Yeah, yeah, he wrote in 2003. So we've been in contact and trying developing that book. So for some reason, and I'm not sure not sure why, I had just happened to have acted in three Stephen King films. You know, and they're not they're not bad. I mean, The Mist in 1922, like 1922 was was uh, number one on Netflix for uh, for a month, and then number three for a long time. So it's great. That one's that one's really strong. Yeah, they showed yeah. that one at Fantastic Fest too. Right. I mean, how, I think, does that, how does that happen? I have no idea. Why? Why am? Why have I been in so many Stephen King films? I'm personally very excited about From a Buick Eight. That's a a book I brought up on the show uh, a bunch as mm. we've been doing it because it's it's one of those ones. It's sort of like no one ever talks about From a Buick Eight. I, I love that book and. All the all the shit with the creatures coming out of the car and like when they find that weird little device in the trunk, like that's like from the traveler from the other dimension, like all that shit just sets my imagination on fire. Like I really want to see someone bring that to the screen. And I had heard you you guys were yeah. uh, and producing yeah, that. I mean, it's interesting for us because you know he wrote that book, and the opening of the book has a state trooper getting run over by a car and dying. Mm-hmm. And what's weird is that right after he wrote it, he, that's when he had his accident. So when Stephen King got hit, he was walking along a country road in Maine and got hit by a guy in a van and literally almost killed the, the greatest literary artist of our time. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Can you uh, imagine? Can you imagine what uh, your conscience would be like after that? I, I, uh, un, in, so King, but King at that time had already written a draft of Buick Eight, which included the exact same scene. Okay, 
So it included a scene where, but it was a state trooper and, and he, but the eerie similarities are uh, that King wrote about the, the way the guy's hat fell across the road, the way the guy's watch land, where it landed and eerily <laughs> some of the things that he had written about were repeated in his actual real life um, accident, you know, which took him two years to recover from. And I think that was in 2001. And then yeah, when, he, when he recovered and he, he started looking at uh, Buick eight again, cause that's what, that's the last thing that he had written before his accident. Nine 11 happened. The twin towers fell down. So then King went back and looked at Buick eight and said, okay, what are we talking about here? And so he sort of wove in this sort of, you know, interesting idea that, uh, is it fate? Is it destiny? Is it insanity? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, and that's sort of what, so he did a second draft of, from a Buick eight after nine 11 hit. And that's the one that, that we've all read. So it's a fascinating book, you know, for me. How far along are you in the process of developing it? Do you guys know Jim Mickle? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cold in July yeah. here, right? Right? He's yeah. pretty fucking good. So we've signed Jim Mickle on. No shit. Nice. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. It, it is. And we've been uh, and we've got a couple of fantastic writers uh that Jim has worked with in the past and and we're and we're we, <laughs> Here's the funny part. Everybody was so excited we had meetings all around town. But if you recall, from a Buick Aid is essentially about a platoon of state troopers in Maryland, in, in Pennsylvania, right. right? And when all the pandemic hit and then the craziness with the riots and all that and the anti-police stuff hit, we were like, okay, maybe it's not the best time to pitch a story <laughs> about a platoon of Pennsylvania state troopers. Well, I think we should we should uh, move on to uh, yeah. less well, less depressing <laughs> subject matter like the end of the mist. Yeah, like <laughs> um, the end of the world. Let's do the end of the world. Here's a few things I want to because I was on the set of the mist for about a week uh, over two different periods. I was there for like I remember four days, and then I was gone for a couple weeks, and I came back for uh, you, for another. Were few you days. there when I uh, when we had all that when I brought everybody all the crawdads? No, I was not there. I, I, I remember you you uh, talking about that, though. Oh, my God. Yeah, I guess it's all I talked about because I'm an idiot. But I loved, I loved the, the crawdads, right? But you could only get them from Texas. So I had them shipped in from Nacogdoches, Texas. And I had yeah. them shipped in to the crew. And they came in a big canoe. And they were full of, of, of uh, cooked crawdads. And we had a crawdad feast. That is my greatest memory from the mist. The mist. Sorry. I, uh, <laughs> Besides <laughs> meeting me, of course. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I remember very vividly was because I'd always heard the stories of like, like, oh, when this person did their scene, the whole crew erupted with applause. And I've been I've spent months and months and months on movie sets over the years and I love them. And I, I've never seen it except for The Mist. And that was when Melissa McBride did her speech at the beginning of the movie. Like I don't know if if you remember that and it stands out, but she's the she's the one that uh, Frank would later cast in The Walking Dead, and now she's a big star on that show. But she she's the the mom that has a speech at the beginning uh, about how her children are left at home and won't somebody walk her? Well, someone's a woman home. home. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
and and no shit that happened like every you could hear a pin drop the whole time she was doing it and after the first take like there was just silence for like five seconds and then everybody applauded and i'd I'd never actually seen that with my own eyes before until that moment it's a hell of a performance oh that's so cool wow you know what's great about the mist is that it is it's it's written for actors you know if you look at the script it's it's written for performers and I have, and I'm so appreciative that you uh, told that story, Eric, because I have seen that uh, very rarely on set, but I've seen it. I've seen it. And, and, and it's a uh, unique experience. And I'm so happy you got to experience that on the mist. Frank wrote a great script, you know, and the actors showed up, you know, it's funny is when you write a great script, Good actors will show up and give you their all. And when that happens, it is appreciated. And every now and then, I'm so happy you got to see that. It's a great story, Eric. Thank you. Listen, everybody expects, you know, you to show up and bring it. Everybody expects Marsha Gay Harden to show up and bring it. But, you know, oh, I, I think it. Marsha Gay brought it. Oh, and, and boy, did she. Um, we'll get to her in a second. But uh, but I, I think at the time, Melissa was just she was like a local hire. You know, she yeah. was a day player. Right. You know, I don't think right. people really expect knew what they were getting. At least, you know, Frank probably did. But, you know, I don't know if the rest did. Well, you know, you hire the people that seem to have that spark. And you hope for the best. <laughs> right. But no, you never know what's going to happen. It's fantastic. Yeah, I, I remember that too. Thank you. That's a that's a good memory. I remember hearing somewhere along the line that Darabont had, you know, he came right off. He had been working on The Shield, I think, or had done an episode or two of that right beforehand. With, uh, t- with the crew from The Shield, which, by the way, yeah. shot The Mist. He hired the whole crew from The Shield to shoot The Mist. Anyway, go on. Well, I was rewatching it earlier today and, and that memory came back to me. And as I was watching it, it was like, you can really feel that because this looks like the shield. You know, it's got that everything's right. handheld and the, the little zoom ins on people and shit. Yep. It's yep. Uh, the little punch ins. Yep. Yeah. It's the yeah. it's such a great um, aesthetic for that particular it story. It's a good choice. You know, have you guys seen? Look, I love The Mist, and I love the script, and I love what we were going for, and I love the fact that we protected the ending, which, by the way, when I had dinner with Stephen King, he said, if I had thought of that ending, I would have written it. <laughs> so he was he was super supportive of what we were doing. I'm stuck on the idea of having dinner with Stephen King. I don't think I'd be able to eat. I think I would be <laughs> You know, the weird thing is we just, we just talked, like the conversation was so mundane. I remember we talked about firewood. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. Like, you're so like, you're just so normal, you know, you're just so, you're just such a normal dude. And then I thought, you know, that's probably right. You know, if somebody can spew so much unconscious and super, you know, super like scary stuff that onto the page. Once you get that out, if you have an outlet to do that, then you yourself. Yeah, I guess you'd be pretty normal. Hmm. And it was an interesting kind of relevation for me. You know, I always thought he would be some kind of weirdo who is obsessed with bats and, you know, (laughs) (laughs) right. Right. Uh, But he, he was the most normal dude. And I was, and then, that was fascinating for me, you know, just, and I, and that, that was sort of my takeaway from having dinner with Steven a couple of times, 
Like if, if you have an outlet, you know, then you yourself, you can just sort of hang out, you know, and talk about firewood. And I, and I loved that. His job is self-therapy. Yeah, a a little bit. And by by the way, I only had dinner with him a couple of times. He might, I don't know. He might be a dick, but (laughs) (laughs) right. But you, you can, once you have that portal and that channel, you yourself are left are you know, sort of free, you know, in a way to kind of be a kind of very, and he was a very mellow, you know, calm, sort of uh, interested uh, human being. He wasn't, ang- he, he didn't have any of the angst or the horror or the, the pain or the, you know, that, that we would, that we read in Stephen King. So that was interesting for me. I met him once and that was my takeaway as well. Very like yeah. salt of the earth type. He walked into the room with like his thumbs hooked into his jeans in his pocket right. and was just like, well, here I am. Like, <laughs> he's just, you know, he, he, I, I believe what you're saying. I, I got the same vibe from him. Interesting how, how if you can find the right outlet, you know, then that kind of frees you up in other parts of your life. That's that was my takeaway. I'm also always interested when it's somebody like that who's achieved that level of success and has untold millions of dollars in the bank that it doesn't, that, that that itself doesn't seem to warp them because, you know, that seems to be pretty common. Um, Absolutely not. You know, and like I, you know, I spent a long time as an actor, poor as fuck, you know, uh, serving food at the Mongolian barbecue, making coffee at the local coffee shop. I learned early on and decided early on when I was slinging coffee and, and, you know, making Mongolian barbecue and, and handing out balloons on Melrose Avenue. I decided early on that as long as I get to do what I love to do, I'm okay. You know, it's not about how rich I am. It's not about how well known I am. I'm doing what I love to do. Yeah, I am totally. doing what I love to do. And I, and I do it. Uh, and I saw that in, in King as well. And so that was uh, interesting, you know, that you would say that. People like that are just, I think they're, they're, I don't know if they're truly happy. I don't know if anyone's like a hundred percent happy at all times, you know, but right. you know, just building off what you're saying, I think when you're, when you're achieving that level of success, doing what you love to do. So it doesn't even really feel like work. Like you'd probably fucking do it anyway, just for fun. You know, I mean, what more could you ask for? That, that seems a little bit, that's like the be all end all, as far as I'm concerned. Like that's what we should all be working towards somehow. I mean, I could, I support that a hundred percent, you know, not, not only what are we looking for, but this is it, pal. You know, if I'm doing, if I can find the time to do what <laughs> yeah. I want to do, this is, this is it. This is all there is, you know, and it doesn't matter how many fucking dollars you have in the bank. And I did it. I did it for years. I did, I did theater on Santa Monica Boulevard in 50 seat theaters for years. And I absolutely loved it and didn't make a dime. And by the way, had to, you know, flip burgers in in order to uh, keep my apartment. And, and I I told my daughter who's now 17 and wondering what the fuck she's going to do with her life. Uh, I said, man, I don't think I was ever happier. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, do, do what you do, do what turns you on. And it doesn't matter, you know, okay. If I have to work for a few hours at this fucking, and by the way, it wasn't what, that wasn't a boring job either. 
I liked uh, slinging coffee, you know, but only because I only liked slinging coffee because I knew that when I got off work, I was going to drive over to my theater that I built with my friends and, and hung lights in there. And we were going to rehearse a play that we were going to put on and about yeah. six people were going to show up and watch it. But I did not give a fuck. I, that is, is what, why I was smiling when I was making your Frappuccino. <laughs> <laughs> so how did, um, how did you come to be on Frank's radar? Um, that's a good question. I will, me and Frank have actually asked ourselves that question and we can't really remember, you know, like Eric said, I've been into comic books. Frank's really into comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was too, you know, I did the Punisher. Uh, I got the opportunity to meet and work with some absolutely the best guys in the business, uh, in comic books, guys like Dave Stevens, Bill Stout, Mark Schultz. Uh, on and on, and Bernie Wrightson. Okay, yeah. Oh wow. Jim Bradstreet became my partner in my company, and Bradstreet's one of the great of the greats. And I, he's one of the nicest probably, dudes I've ever met. Oh my god, me and Tim, we have had such a great relationship over the years. You know, so I think it was probably through Bernie Wrightson. Um, and you guys should definitely, if you haven't heard of Bernie Wrightson, look him up. He's one of the greats. Okay. Uh, but I'm very I familiar with Bernie. Yeah. I knew you guys are. I'm just saying that our listeners. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I think the connection was probably through Bernie in some way because I was working with Bernie. Of course, you know, Darabont was working with Bernie, and I think, and Bradstreet. But anyway, it was a, it was a comic book connection that hooked uh, Darabont and us up. Um, but that has nothing to do with the mist. One day a script showed up on my front porch and it was Frank and he had his assistant drop off the script for the mist and said, Hey, I don't, I haven't shown this to anyone yet, but are you interested in this? And that's sort of how the relationship began. Do you remember the script originally opened in the Arrowhead project? Yes, I do. I thought that was a really cool opening. I thought, I thought, the opening of the the secret experiment and then the portal opening up and then the monsters creeping through. I thought that's fucking cool, but we ended up cutting that. I have a, I have a story budget, about is that, that a budget uh, thing. When I was uh, at the mist on the mist set, cause I was a guest of Frank's, I was sitting behind him like for the entirety of my time there pretty much. And there was a moment where he and uh, one of the producers, Denise, was they were having a discussion about the finale and they were talking about the cost of the tanks and the cost of like the people movers and the flamethrowers right. and all that stuff. Gotcha. And, uh, and they, they were talking about like how, you know, Frank really wanted, there was like an extra tank he could get for 50 grand or something where he's like, but that that'll make the shot. That'll give me what I need for that, for that finale. Right. And they were kind of debating it. And suddenly Frank turns to me and he says, so he says, uh, like, hey, you read the script. I said, yeah. And he's like, and you know the novella? I'm like, yeah, backwards and forwards. And he goes, what do you think about the opening? And I'm like, well, dude, I think it's really cool. It's neat that you're starting this in the Arrowhead project. And I've always wanted to know what that kind of looked like. But I said, you know, the, the only negative to it is that one of the great things about the novella is the mystery around it. You don't explain what this supernatural thing is. It's just there. And people have to deal with it, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and wow. I think by by dropping right at the beginning, by dropping an explanation of this is exactly what it is, it takes away some of the horror of of what wow. could possibly be in there. And uh, and he turned wow. to Denise and said, "All right, that settles it. We're cutting the opening." And I was like, "Oh, look at me! I'm, <laughs> I'm like I helped or whatever." And then I heard on the commentary that he he credited that to a dinner he had with Andre Brower, <laughs> where Andre told him he didn't need the opening. So so maybe I'll, I'll yeah, I only get partial that, credit, but that's that, that's too that's too bad. But I learned two things. One, you have an amazing memory. Fuck, you remember Denise? My God, I did not yeah. remember her name. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I have a vague, I have a weird sort of uh, affinity for that memory. I'm not sure if I was there or I heard the story, but I know what you're talking about. And um, yeah, I think you did, you know. And, and and I Frank does that kind of thing. He does turn to people who he who he knows uh, understands the material and asks questions and listens to the response and, 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 and is able to take it in. And, and between you and me, I don't think Andre Brower ever read the fucking short story. Okay. So, (laughs) 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 but you know, as a press story is a press story, whatever. But That's a great story. I love it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell it whether or not he admits it in public or not. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the truth happens to be the truth. And I like the truth. Yeah, I wish too. I wish Darabont had got, somehow been able to take a crack at the Dark Tower and talk about you know people really understanding it, like getting it. You know, I think well, he would have. You know, Darabont's on everybody's shit list because he decided to sue uh, the Walking Dead people, AMC. So yeah, I would love to have seen. You know, he's he's a one of the great talents, and one of the sad things about Darabont is that he's not working as much as he should be because I'm yeah. tired of watching idiots direct stuff when i could be watching darabont what the <laughs> fuck yeah from your lips to god's ears man that's that's how god. that's how we feel constantly especially when somebody who's proven so adept at adapting my favorite author right like darabont gets king in a way that very few directors do and writers mm-hmm. do and he knows how to adapt like my favorite things you know and and the fact that you know, that he's not out there, you know, continuing to kick ass, whether it's a Stephen King thing or, or an original thing. Like, you know, it, 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 you're right. It, it is. It's a travesty that he's not. He's it's not. A, uh, he, he hasn't made crime. like 10 movies. Since I, I agree. I agree with you 100 percent. It is a crime that he should not be out there, you know, having a movie come out every year or every other year it's it's insanity you know but but that's part of the sort of the business that we that we live in and, and right. the weird weird climate that uh we are all forced to create within you know and uh, i don't know what darabont's final sort of discography is going to be but uh boy i wish it was more than what he's doing now you know for sure and i don't like all this you know do you do you guys know the story that Frank Darabont and I took The Walking Dead to HBO. No, no. I mean, I I knew that he shopped it around. I remember I ran into Frank at the um, premiere of King Kong in New York in 2005. And he, it was there that he goes, man, you have to read this comic book. It's called The Walking Dead. You'll right. love it. it. It's zombies. I'm like, the zombies are kind of played out. And he goes, nope. Right. He's like, trust me, read this. And I think they were on issue like 22 or 23 at that point. And because of that, I I uh, started reading. And he was like, yeah, I got the rights. I'm going to try to make this. But yeah, no, tell me the HBO story. 
That's right. Yes. And it's, it's so cool. I love talking to you, Erica. I mean, it's so fun to see, you know, we're, we really are. We're, we love what we do. And I like talking to people that love what they do. So yes, the story is very simple. After we did the mist, he <laughs> also said, you got to read this graphic novel, the walking dead. He sent me the walking dead. I was like, well, you're right. Like, I'm, and by the way, I hate zombies. Don't <laughs> want anything to fucking do with zombies. Don't like, I mean, it was like, okay, played out done. Let's, can we move on for fuck's sake? Can we come up with some other kind of fucking monster? Does it always have to be zombies? <laughs> right. So <laughs> he shows me the walking dead. I'm like, dude, this is incredible because it was about people. Right. So he writes the script I'm doing Hung at HBO. This is 2012. I'm doing Hung, 2011, maybe. And he's he's like, I, he sends me the script. I said, the pilot, I said, this is fucking phenomenal. I'm Why don't I send this to the head of HBO? Of course, yes, let's do it. I said, because I'm doing Hung. So that means as an actor... When you're doing the lead in a uh, major network, you can't go and do another lead in another network, right? So I, as, if I'm starring in a show in Hung, I couldn't go and star in a show in TNT or AMC or a, any other place. So he says, why don't we take it to HBO? So we did. Now, HBO at the time was doing, what's the vampire series? Help me out, the, 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 you know, from you know, to, uh, uh, True I, Blood. True, true Blood. blood. Oh, yeah. They were doing True Blood. So I said, HBO, hey, me, Frank Darabont, Walking Dead, pretty fucking cool, read it. They were like, hey, we love it, but we don't want to be the monster channel. We don't want to have a vampire show and a zombie show. Yeah. Whoops. whoops. <laughs> yeah, whoops and indeed. They and they passed. <laughs> And that's why, you know, I'm not the star of The Walking Dead. But by the way, I, I mean, I'd love to do it for a couple of years, but I don't know if I could do five years of The Walking, seven years of The Walking. I mean, yeah. It might, might shoot me in the head, you know. <laughs> but anyway, that, that's, how that, that's how that played out. Um, yeah, me and Frank uh, wanted to work together a lot after, uh, after The Mist. And the, walk, the Walking Dead was our first attempt and we had a couple other uh, projects that also fell apart, and, and and you know, and then Frank sort of got, you know, put on the blacklist because of this suing of uh, AMC and all that garbage. But right. uh, I tell you, I think it's a tragedy. Does a thing I, like that ever let up? Like, or is he just done? I don't. I think I, I my my belief is that it does let up. You know? Yeah, it's got it right. Yeah, that's my belief, but I'm not sure you know, how long this fucking the lawyers. I mean, how much money are you going to spend? How much money are you going to give to the lawyers until it does let up? But yeah, I do. In Hollywood, I think that writing like Frank's, directing like Frank's, is so rare that eventually you will be let back into the club. You yeah. Know? But here's the thing: is is Frank doesn't suffer fools, um, and and that's. That that's a great attribute, but it's also you know yeah. he he didn't play you know politics the way some directors do. No. If somebody said something stupid and was trying that would hurt the project, he would tell them they were stupid and it hurt the project. Wow. Um. And and I feel I feel like he he burned 
some bridges. But the thing about Hollywood is that, you know, every they're like, it's like a snake that sheds its skin. You know, every 10 years, there's going to be, you know, everybody who's in a position of power. There's a whole new crop of execs and right, stuff right. like that. So that's right. There's always a chance, but I, I agree with you. And that's also why I love Frank. And that's also why me and Frank got along so well. It's why I've spent so much time with Frank. Why I've, you know, had dinner at his house, house, you know, it's why we've got along because we don't suffer those kind of fools not interested, you know, and and it is, it's a double-edged sword. It can hurt you. And I think it's hurt me too, you know, as an actor. So, but that's okay. You know, that's okay. I'm not flipping burgers at Burger King. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Um, curious if when the mist, uh, once it was finished and you were ready to show it to people, I assume it went through some test screenings. Would that be correct? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, the Weinstein Company made the huge mistake of deciding to release The Mist on Thanksgiving weekend, <laughs> which is the weekend. That- <laughs> Come on. I mean, it couldn't be kind of like you, hilarious, right? You don't want to bring your in-laws to, to go see The Mist? I, I, Thanksgiving weekend is the number one weekend of taking your family to the movies, right? It's like that's the statistics. Like it's Thanksgiving, <laughs> you will eat your turkey get your food coma on and then go to a film. Right. And what do we put out the mist where everybody <laughs> dies, right? <laughs> including the kid. <laughs> so that was like the dumbest idea ever. Uh, so yes. Well, that's what I was curious about is like those, those initial reactions to the, to the ending. Did, did those make their way back to you or was it a thing you just absorbed over time? How people. Yeah, no, that's funny. I, I don't have any uh, recollection of any uh, sort of reactions from test screenings. What I, what I, what my recollection is, is that they decided to release a movie where somebody kills his entire family on Thanksgiving <laughs> weekend, which is the weekend where most families go to the movies. Okay. So that was, that was me and Bob Wine, and I hung out with Bob Weinstein, you know, a bit. And, but I, I never got the opportunity to ask him, like, what the fuck were you thinking, pal? And one month after we, Halloween, no less. My God, that's a yeah. dumb idea. Oh, let's, oh, yes, we've all had a great Thanksgiving. Let's go watch a movie where everybody dies. It's like, are you dumb? Like, to be that- fair, most, most people on Thanksgiving are ready to kill their family by, by the end. Of the day. <laughs> fine too. That's fine too. But that's also depressing. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you talk a little bit about shooting that, that sequence? Because like you are so emotionally raw in that aftermath. Like how, I, I can't even imagine how you, you psych yourself up for that shot after when you're just like, you know, dry firing the gun in your mouth and, it is one of the most brutal performances in genre or drama, anything I've ever seen. Wow. Can, you, can you talk a little bit about, about that, that moment? Wow. Well, first of all, thank you. Uh, it's very cool to hear because as an actor, you know, you never really know how people are going to react to the stuff that we create, you know, but so that that's a compliment and I appreciate it. Um, and second of all, that's why they pay me money. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, because, you know, I've been working on this shit since I was 15, 14 years old, you know, it's, it's a, um, dedication to, and belief in the truth of the human condition that we all share and hide. 
We hide, we hide from each other the truth all the time. And I have always been interested in exposing what that truth is, that we are always hiding from each other. And we are connected, we need each other, and that during this pandemic and all shit, I think it's more evident than ever that we need each other. Yeah. Right. But, but we also have a a lot of uh, subterfuge, okay, that we use to make sure that you know that I'm cool, that you're cool, that I, you know, that I have more a lot of stuff and I wish you wish that you had the stuff that I had, you know, and just and, and I am loved in the way that you and it just goes on and I ate at the restaurant that you haven't discovered yet. <laughs> It just goes on and on. So I, I've always been interested in exposing that. So thank you. I, I, I appreciate that, that you, that you saw the work that I did, you know, is it perfect? No, you know, I did what I did. You know, I, I had the time that I had and I, I did what I, and I did the best that I could, but essentially if you saw anything good in that movie that I did, it was because I just gave a shit. You know, yeah. I cared. I didn't sit in my trailer and drink frappuccinos and hang out, you know, with a sexy uh, script girl. <laughs> I, 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 I fucking care. And that's what I saw. And that's what I, and so I gave it the best I could, you know, is it the best ever? No, but it's, but it's the best I could do. So thank you. But it, but it was real. That That's the thing is, is it, there, there's an authenticity to that. It didn't feel like, this is, you know, I'm an actor playing sad now. Like it, it in that <laughs> moment, you're David Drayton is completely broken only to be broken even further when, whenever you find out that he was a minute away from rescue and that he did it without needing to do what he did in the knife right. is twisted. Uh, it, it's such a, a very layered performance of uh, grief and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, just a broken human being. Well, I appreciate that. I, I gave it everything I had, you know, because I believe in the power of story. So do you. That's why we're talking. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'm, I'm curious uh, what the thinking was in keeping the ending secret from most of the crew. Uh, we just didn't want, um, well, first of all, we thought that the twist was kind of cool. <laughs> right. You know, and, it, and it, we're still in the era of the internet. So, uh, you know. No, uh, oh, gotcha. Yeah. And so that's it. You know, we just wanted to um, try to preserve the, uh, you know, the Twilight Zone ending that we had created. And we just wanted, we simply wanted to preserve that for as many people as we possibly could. Totally. Totally. I don't think I knew when I saw the movie. I don't think I knew how it ended, which was unusual because, as you, as you already pointed out, that I I guess your plan was successful because. You know, that was sort of during the era where movie blogs were making a killing on spoiling a lot of shit. Oh, my God. Yeah. As Quint knows. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It definitely doesn't uh, hasn't escaped me that that it's funny that Frank sent the ending to a prominent movie blogger, you know, a year before before even started shooting. uh, Yet he was super secretive with the crew, worried it was going to leak out on the Internet. But I guess I guess he trusted me with it. I didn't yeah. know that. That's weird. I have no yeah. idea. I mean, like, yeah. uh, there are people 
there are filmmakers that I think people in our line of work become friendly with, and then they, they learn over time. They can trust you with a secret, you know? Right. And there's all kinds of shit, like people that do what Eric and I have done for a living for the past, however many years, or, you know, uh, all of us know a bunch of shit we're not supposed to know at any given time, but, uh, you would have to be a real fucking idiot to have that sort of have that that level of access, I think, to uh, the the industry that you're covering for a living and, you know, break the trust of it. Right. You, right. You know, that's just. Well, I, I love the story that Eric told about, you know, Eric, uh, Darabont turning to Eric because, you know, we we why is Eric even on the set? Hello. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So him knowing that and turning to Eric and saying, what do you think? Like, you know, the story, what do you think? Like, that is a great story because that is what we do. You know, we are guardians, you know, of, of, of these, we believe in the power of, of these stories. And that's why we are sitting, you know, we're not sitting on set so we can meet Thomas Jane or some other for fucking, you know, so, no, we're there because we believe in the power of what is being done and it's fast. And it, so, of course, we are guardians. Yes, you'd have to be a complete fucking idiot yeah. to break that trust. Tom, did you ever see the Miss TV series that they did? No, I, I didn't. I didn't. I made it like 20. Oh, minutes. boy, is it bad. It's so <laughs> yeah. terrible. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. not good. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. I and, and by the way, I, you know, I, I'm sure those people were doing the best they could. I sure. guess. Oh, I'm sure. You know? I just think fundamentally, it's not a thing that needs to be an ongoing series. You know, <laughs> like from from before I've even seen a frame of it, I'm like, well, this is a bad idea, but okay, let's do what you got. <laughs> and and then it's you know, it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. You know, it's like yeah. people in different positions all over the town, and so it's just The Walking Dead in fog. You know, right, with right, monsters right. jumping out instead of fucking zombies. And that's yeah. just not what that story wants to be. That story is a microcosm of, of society. And that's that's what it's about. You know, it's and crazy. Been in, yeah. And, you know, and there's different lev- levels of talent. There's different levels of understanding, you know, and and, sure. and and today there's such a demand for any kind. There's so much material. There's so many shows. My God, it just uh, it feels like there's going to be a lot of stuff that's sort of half, you know, not going to be sort of half-assed. Sure. Right. And they're never going to stop adapting King, you know? Like No, no. And I love, and, and, yeah, and I love, I love the attempts t- to adapt King. It was My funny. God, just, it's not easy. Just, it's not easy. Nope. Just the other night, someone on Twitter was asking, like, what we're going to do when we run out of adaptations to talk about, because that's typically what this show is. And while uh, while I was in the res- in the process of responding to that, the story broke through deadline that like every single short story in King's new book had the rights had sold to like various different people and places. Interesting. Like, well, there's fucking five more like right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's five right. more episodes. <laughs> you were never right. gonna stop. Yeah, no, and and King has had had a renaissance lately. Yeah. We, unfortunately, as, as we've discussed, you know, I love from a Buick gate, but that's been put on pause for now. But, you know, in my estimation, I think King is our greatest novelist. I really do. I think that he's underrated right now because he's a pulp novelist or a genre novelist. But in my estimation, 
and I've, and I, I'm a reader. I, I love books. I, I, I love to read. My mother gave me that gift, you know, when I was a kid, I think he's the best, you know? So I, I think that, uh, you know, some stuff, uh, works out and some stuff doesn't, you know, <laughs> not everybody, <laughs> not everybody, you know, sort of get, get catches the drift. You know what I mean? What has been your uh, favorite of the, you know, you mentioned this new King Renaissance that we're in, which I totally agree with. What has been, you know, your favorite of this crop? Oh, shit. I mean, you know, really, uh, first of all, I, I love 1922 that he did for Netflix. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. What do you think? What do you, I mean, I liked, I liked the first, uh, it. I yeah. That right. Really I think that's sort of the gold standard right now. Right now. Yeah. What's really interesting about, it chapter one versus two. And, you know, I'm sure eventually we'll do episodes on those movies, but, and, and we'll get into this again there. But the first one was, you know, they rewrote Carrie Fukunaga's script, which is yeah. one of the, one of the best scripts I've ever yeah, read. I mean, why the fuck would you write, write, rewrite Fukunaga? What the well, fuck? Well, that's the thing. They kept most of the, a lot of it intact. There's, there yeah. was a few sequences that were like flashback sequences that, that got pulled, but by and large, like that movie is very similar up to like, there's a, I remember there's uh like in, in the opening pages uh, or in the opening scene in Fukunaga's draft, there's even a mention of like, you know, a close up of a cat when, you know, Georgie's being killed or whatever in the, in the storm drain. And I think that right. that, that same shot is still in there in Muschietti's version. And then the second one, they didn't have that to work from. And I think it's a real interesting case of how much of the first movie's success might inadvertently be sort of attributable to to that Fukunaga draft when you see like how chapter two turned out, which I I just it didn't resonate with me in the same ways that the first one did. No, and I think it's a matter of sort of, you know, no matter who's adapting what, it's a matter of wh- where are you aiming your gun, you know? Mm-hmm. What are you going for? For whatever reason, it's a little bit rare that uh, we have people who are aiming for the right, you know, like Darabont or Fukunaga. We're aiming for the, for the, um, we're aiming for gold, you know. By the way, you know, as you know, Eric, you've been on a lot of sets. Scott, I'm, I'm sure you have too. Sure. Uh, you know, we're, uh, we're all doing the best we can. <laughs> yeah, <you know>? Yes. <laughs> and it's a, kind of a miracle when anything turns out halfway decent. That's true. I agree with that. I've never been on a set before where I got the impression like these people, they know they're making a piece of shit. I've been on sets where they turned out to be making a piece of shit, but no one <laughs> at the, no one at the time knew it. And they were all very, you know, cheerful and, um, right. you know, happy to be doing what they were doing. I, I absolutely believe that, you know, so we're all bringing, we're all bringing our capacity, you know, we're all, we're happy to be there. We're happy we're not flipping burgers and saying, do you want fries with that? Right. Ha- but more than that, we're also interested in ha- and, and want to deliver the best that we can, but we're doing it to our capacity. Um, and uh, I suppose that's why I've decided to start moving into directing. You know, I directed uh, episode three of season five of The Expanse for Amazon in January and I did it and I got the job and they actually let me do it. (laughs) And, and they actually, they were very, very pleased with the result. 
I did it because I've been doing it for 25 years and I thought I have something to give, you know, I, I've got knowledge that a lot of directors don't have. I, I can work with these actors. I can work with these crew members. I can work with a production designer. I can work with the writer. I know how to tighten up a scene. And that is my passion. I'm not sure that, you know, and, and I think that you guys, you know, are talking to people who are also passionate. Totally. About, about yeah. what they're doing. I love it. You know, it means something. It means something to us. It's it's myth. It's allegory. It talks to us. It speaks to our souls. And that's what I want to do, you know, and all the bullshit and all the money and all the Hollywood and all the parties and all that crap can go fuck themselves. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> what I care about is the stories that we're telling, you know, and and how we're communicating to our fellow, you know, human beings, and I and I love, and that's why I agreed to do this podcast with you, <laughs> because I know, <laughs> you know, from from meeting Eric, that uh, that that's what you guys are interested in too, you know, and and that's really all there is, you know, and and it's not it's not their fault, you know, everybody is at their own level and trying to do their best, you know, and, right, but what their best is and what exactly they want, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure all the time, but I know what I want, you know, and that, and that's why, you know, Darabont, you know, I've worked with Darabont, Stephen King, and, you know, for some reason I've done three Stephen King and now a fourth. <laughs> really weird. I don't, I mean, you're a good but, fit for the world. Yeah, totally. You you understand totally. it. You understand its power. You know, you, you know, you treat it with respect. I think that there's a reason why, uh, you you keep uh, crossing paths with King mm-hmm. in his work. Ah, that's nice. It's good. It's int- I like that. <laughs> uh, before well, we, we wrap up, I do have one oh, last question for uh, Tom. I mentioned earlier that you and I have been in the same room together, like in uh, at like film festivals or or the like at the Alamo Draft House or Fantastic Fest. Wait, wait, wait was it was it with uh, was it with Shane Black? No, that was at AFF. And oh, okay. yeah, I've only gone to AFF a few times, but yeah, I've only been, I think the one time, but anyway, but fantastic fest. I go to uh, every year, not this year, obviously, but um, <laughs> every other year, it's like the best week out of the year, every year. Yeah, year. I know. I fuck. That was great. Um, but a thing I've noticed about you in person is <laughs> I've not, I've seen you dressed very nicely, but not wearing shoes. And I'm very curious about your, um, your methodology as it pertains to shoes or the not wearing yeah. of them. Well, I guess it's just to fuck myself in the ass. Cause everybody like is, makes fun of me for not wearing shoes. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my God. Are you just it's more comfortable point. like without shoes? Is it that simple? Really is. You know, even my mother would like, you know, she'd see pit photographs, you know, whatever of me without shoes on. She'd call me up and go, you need to tell them a story. You need to tell them. <laughs> All right. She goes, my mom, you need to tell them that you're not wearing shoes because of all the poor people in the world who can't afford <laughs> shoes. Man. Uh, so now it's a statement. Yeah, right? You need to make a statement out of it. Well, no, the truth is I don't wear shoes. And when I go to these places, you know, for, for some reason, I said to myself, why do I should I wear shoes to this thing when I don't actually wear shoes? 
<laughs> right? So I'm like, okay, let's, so let's not wear shoes. And then you're just fucked. You know, then everybody's like, oh, look, he's got no shoes on. It's just, compl- it's just a mess. It, it's just like, you know, so I've decided to wear shoes. It's only to the places that people were going to photograph me with <laughs> shoes on. Right. So, yes. No, I do not wear shoes. I have never worn shoes. I hate shoes. I don't like things around my feet. They feel like prison. Okay. Right. But now, now you will. Oh, next time you see me photographed on some red carpet or some fucking interview, I'm going to be wearing shoes. Because I'm tired of people asking me why the fuck I don't wear shoes. And guess what? <laughs> As soon as I as soon as I get off that red carpet, I'm gonna p- fucking take my shoes off. I think people are gonna miss the lack of shoes once it's gone. You think you're Do gonna you? wear the shoes, and then they're gonna be like, "Why are you wearing shoes? You're the guy that doesn't wear shoes." And I, I, think, I think people think I'm an idiot. You know, like I I think it's like hurt my career. I don't think it's an intelligence <laughs> thing, but it is. It does draw the eye. You know, it is unusual. <laughs> You know, if someone were wearing if someone were wearing earmuffs around everywhere, I would also ask, like, yo, what's the deal with the earmuffs? You know what I'm saying? So it's so it's it's a similar thing where, like, it's going to get brought up, you know? Yeah. So why? So why not bring why bring it up? You know, just like my girlfriend. She's like, dude, if you're going to go out with me, you're going to fucking put shoes on, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, why, you know, I don't, you know, so, okay, okay. I can handle wearing shoes for an hour to doing, during my stuff. And then I take them off again. But the truth is you haven't wear me wear shoes is because that's the way I live, you know, and I'm tired of putting on a facade and, and, and you know, oh, wear this, you know, and by the way, also, I am not going to wear your Armani coat. Okay. I'm going to wear my coat, the one that I like. And I'm going to have no fucking shoes on That's <laughs> the way I, you know, uh, but my, my girlfriend says that it's bad for me. So I, and I believe her, you know, it's like, uh, I, I don't think it's good. I well, don't think you it's could good. step on something. You got to be up on your tetanus shots. You're going to go with no shoes. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, should we let you in? You're right. Not, not that anyone's ever going to photograph me ever again out in public. Cause no one's ever going to go out in public ever again. <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true that's our true. lives are all indoors now right yeah. 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 nobody's wearing shoes anymore tom <laughs> i like talking to you guys you guys are yeah cool. i just put on pants for the first time the other day and like <laughs> it must have been a month it's like yeah, oh yeah jeans so i did a movie with my girlfriend Anne Hayes, and it's called the vanished they changed the name um and we're gonna do access hollywood uh next month Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the movie's coming out next month. We decided we decided to do this thing where we're going to uh, do the whole in- – because obviously everything's over Zoom now, right? Mm-hmm. So we're in our house and we're wearing our pretty clothes and we've got our nice haircuts and we got a little makeup on. And then at the end of the interview, we're going to stand up and we're going to have no pants on. <laughs> <laughs> It'll go over well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm play. a fan of that plan. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, man. Like, uh, we we could talk to you for another couple hours on on uh, all the other Stephen King related and not related stuff, but uh, but it's been great catching up, uh, and I really appreciate you taking. Yeah, the time. thank you so much. This was great. You guys are great. Thank you so much. And by right, the way, ma- let's do it again. 